Now, we're coming to Isaiah chapter 61, and the last uh, six chapters in Isaiah, I'm just going to touch briefly on Isaiah 61, and then talk a little bit more about Isaiah 66. The the chapters in between uh, continue to talk about how God uh, is going to be ultimately delivering Israel and uh, the, the work that uh, he is doing in them as a nation to bring them back to himself. In Isaiah 61, it's a fascinating passage. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. This is very similar to what we've already seen in Isaiah chapter 11, but it goes on to say to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland of a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. The promises here are promises that are clearly about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And and the promise that Messiah will bring is that he will bring good news to the afflicted and bind up the brokenhearted. And as he goes on in that passage, it addresses all of the needs that human beings have, doesn't it? Uh, When our lives are in distress, when we're struggling, uh, when our hearts are broken, when we are in bondage to things that have uh, laid their grip upon us and we can't seem to shake loose uh, and gain freedom, The promise is that the one who is coming will provide relief from all of those things. That he will restore and uh, revive us in a sense that we will experience liberty. And the brokenhearted will be restored and bound up and the prisoners will be set free. In the synagogues, and let me give you a little bit of uh, historical background here. After the exiles, you recall that the Assyrians uh, took over the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in about uh, 721 or so and carried them captive and they were spread throughout uh, the region. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah captive. And all of God's people, in essence, were taken uh, 
by these foreign people and into a time of captivity, the northern and southern kingdoms were basically carried away into captivity. As the southern kingdom under Cyrus were permitted to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and kind of restore the worship, one of the things that occurred during that um, post-exilic period, those 400 or so years uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament as we're introduced to the birth of Jesus, is that the Jews lived in different towns and um, villages all around the, the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, and they were scattered all over the place. They couldn't always make it to the temple. They were not able to uh, follow the ritual worship that God had prescribed for them. And so they established synagogues. And what the word literally means is a gathering. So they established synagogues and they came together in the synagogues to uh, have the scripture read and to have someone who was of age give an exposition uh, or a talk of the scripture that was read and they would worship God in that way in the local synagogue. And so if you lived in a place like, for example, Nazareth, as Jesus did, uh, all the Jewish people in Nazareth would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was Saturday to us, and they would gather, and the uh, chief rabbi of the synagogue would give the scroll, whichever one they were reading for that Sabbath, to one of the men of the congregation, and he would read it and give an explanation. And so when Jesus uh, came back to Nazareth, his ministry had already begun, and he was having uh, news spread about him all over because he had worked miracles and the, and the news was spreading. And so as he came back to his hometown, it says, as was his habit in Luke chapter 4, he went to the synagogue. And what often happens when a guest returns, you invite them to speak. And so the chief rabbi gave him the scroll. And Jesus opened to Isaiah 61. And he read this passage. And after he read the passage and rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the, to the chief rabbi, he sat down, and this was the beginning of his exposition. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, the person whom Isaiah is speaking of in chapter 61, I am that person. He was identifying himself with Messiah. And for a, a little bit, the people were really excited 
um, because they had heard about all the things he had done in other places. And Jesus said, no doubt you've heard about the miracles that have been performed in Capernaum and in other places. And uh, he said, I want to tell you something. He said, and he began to talk about how uh, people in their hometowns were not accepted and how God had sent the prophets and, and the uh, preachers of the Old Testament to non-Jews, to the Syrians and to others, rather than the house of Israel, because of the hardness of their heart. And then he said, I tell you the truth, that all of the things that have been performed elsewhere cannot be performed here because of the lack of your faith and because you have a hard heart. For a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Now, when you think about that, that proverb is true uh, no matter who you are. If you grow, if you grow up among people... Um, they know you as a little kid. They, they know you growing up. They don't think anything particularly special of you. And then all of a sudden, when you uh, become uh, well-known and recognized, it's like, who is that? That's Joseph the carpenter's son. Good grief, what's he got to say? And that's kind of what was happening there. And so Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And as a consequence, they went from joy to rage. And they ran him out of the synagogue and they led him to the cliff of the hill the town was built on and their intention was to throw him off the cliff and kill him. Uh, they were very unhappy with his accusation of them as a hard-hearted people. And this is one of the miracles of the Bible that Jesus walked through them. And that's what it literally says. He walked through them. Can you imagine if all of you gathered here this morning, cornered someone over here in the corner, uh, and were pressing in against that person, and then all of a sudden, they weren't there anymore. And they were there walking out the door. What happened? Uh, Jesus literally just simply passed through the people in a miraculous way and went on his way and left uh, Nazareth. And his ministry was never effective in Nazareth. His hometown was just simply, uh, they never recognized him for who uh, he should be. So, in Isaiah 61, we are introduced to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. And in comparing that with Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we are given unmistakable proof that the Messiah whom Isaiah speaks of is Jesus of Nazareth, who is recognized in the New Testament. You know, if, if there were ever a doubt as to who Jesus is, uh, all you have to do is just read the Old Testament. 
He appears constantly throughout the the pages of Scripture. Uh, One person has said, a scholar, that Jesus can be found on every page in the Bible. I don't know if that's quite literally true, uh, but um, nonetheless, he he can be found throughout all of Scripture. I had a friend... Uh, make that comment to me one time. He said, you know, Jesus can be found on every page of the Bible. And uh, I said, I- I'm not sure I believe that. And he said, well, just open your Bible to any page and read it, and we'll see if uh, Jesus isn't there. And so I opened, <clears throat> kind of prejudicially, to Numbers. And... Uh, <laughs> I read one of those passages with so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, you know, it's on and on and on. And I mentioned a name who happens to be in the lineage of Jesus. And my friend said, see, I told you, (laughs) you can find him throughout all of Scripture. This is a fascinating chapter as we conclude Isaiah The first several verses in chapter 66, verses 1 through 6, contextually kind of go with the preceding um, chapter. But when we get to verse 7, notice what it says. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Such things. Now, Isaiah is giving us a metaphor. He's talking about a woman giving birth, and the the term travail uh, means the anguish of labor, and the pain is actually the pain of the delivery. And so Isaiah says, before she travailed, she brought forth, and before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. And the question that is raised is, who has ever heard of this? Who has ever heard of the fact that a woman that was drawing near to the time of delivery would suddenly have a child without any pain, without any labor, without any distress, All of a sudden, this woman would have a baby boy. And it would come suddenly and surprisingly and uh, without any hindrance. And Isaiah says, "Who who has heard of such a thing? This is miraculous. But then he goes on to say, Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? In other words, Isaiah has given us a metaphor to which we can relate. We are familiar with the pain and distress of the labor process leading to birth. Particularly those of you who have, women who have had children. And so, 
Isaiah says, this is what I'm talking about. The nation of Israel is going to be born just as quickly, just as miraculously, with no prelude of labor, with no travail of pain. The nation of Israel is going to be born in one day. How long does it take to build nations? When you think about it. Look at, look at our nation, the United States. When did the pilgrims land? When was the beginning of, of our history? And then when was the Declaration of Independence? It took a long time to go from a people who were just looking for a new place uh, to, to build their homes and have freedom to the point where a nation was formed and a constitution was developed and a country was born. It took a long time. Nations are not born in one day. And yet the scripture says that Israel is going to be born in one day. What Israel are we talking about? We're talking about the one that has been brought back to Jerusalem. From the four corners of the earth, we're talking about the Jewish people who have migrated back to their homeland, and yet they're not a strong, godly nation. They're a tiny people. They're fierce in many respects, and yet, on the other hand, they are weak compared to all the nations around them. And so, uh, as they gather together, the Scripture says that in one day, they're going to be born. I want you to look in, at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. This is the famous valley of dry bones where Ezekiel has this vision. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And lo, they were very dry. Do you have the picture in your mind? In this valley, there are skeletons covering the floor of the valley. They've been bleached by the sun. They are dried out. There's nothing left on them. They're whitened from the sun that has uh, beat upon them for a long time. And he said to me, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me again, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath on you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Now the vision that Ezekiel is having is the vision of, again, the Jewish people. They rejected their Messiah, their Savior. They went their own way. They've spent 2,000 years across the globe without the Spirit of God and without a relationship with God that is, that is genuine. And as a consequence, they're spiritually dry. They are dead in their spirit and, and spiritually dry, and it's like a valley of dry bones. So I prophesied, verse 7, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Again, uh, use your sanctified imagination and see what's going on here. Here are all these human bones, and all of a sudden, uh, radius and ulna are connecting to, to humerus, and they're connecting to the collarbones and the scapula, and they're connecting to the spine and they're connecting to the skull and all of a sudden the legs are coming together, but these are still bones. But skeletons are shaping or are forming that look like human skeletons now, not just a, a valley of bones, but individual people. But they're still dry. And then, and then the sinews and the flesh begins to come upon them. And God causes the skin to come upon them. And then eventually they come together as whole people. Now, Ezekiel is looking at a valley filled with corpses. That's what he sees. They're real people. I mean, they look just like people. They're all together. But there's no life in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man. Now in Hebrew, the word breath is the same word as spirit. The breath that we breathe is the breath that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam when he made him. And it's the breath of God that gives life. And so he says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceeding army. Now, we're getting somewhere. These corpses have now stood up. And they're beginning to breathe, but they're still spiritually dead. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, 
Our bones are dried up. Our hope has perished. We're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of the graves, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Here is another perspective, another way of viewing that there will come a time in Israel's history once she is brought together, once she has formed the nation, once she has stood up as an exceeding army, there will come a time when the breath of God will breathe upon all of the people of Israel and they will come to life. And so when you look at Isaiah and at Ezekiel, and we ask the question, can a nation be born in a single day? Can a people be brought forth all at once? It's literally talking about, in a 24-hour period, a miraculous birth. And now in Ezekiel, it's talking about a miraculous revival of life. That dry bones have become living, spirit-filled people. Something is happening that is dramatic in the land of Israel. And as we go on in Isaiah 66 and move down uh, the passage a bit, I want you to look at Zechariah. I know I just told you Isaiah, but I'm just trying to see how well you know your Bible. Um, in Zechariah chapter 12, and beginning in verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadremon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David and their wives and the family of Nathan and the family of the house of Levi and their wives and the family of the Shemites and their wives, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives. This is describing a moment when Israel will look on Jesus, their Messiah. They will see Him. He will appear, and they will look upon Him. And the Scripture says, they will recognize that this is the one we pierced. 
This is the one we crucified. And in that recognition, they will be mourning. They will be grief-stricken that for 2,000 plus years, however much longer we wait, they had rejected their Messiah. And they had put him to death and missed the whole purpose of God in him. And they will grieve over that. And then in, in um, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, this is an amazing passage in itself. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now this is talking about all the pagan nations of the world that have been following the Antichrist. They will come against Jerusalem to destroy Israel once and for all. And I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And then, if you look down to verse 5, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. This is a terrible moment in Israel's life. All the nations have come against her, and now they're beginning to invade her. And it looks like she's not going to survive. It looks like she's going to be destroyed as a, as a nation. And it says, Then the Lord my God will come and all His holy ones with Him. Who are the holy ones? Who are the saints? We are followers, believers in Jesus Christ. In other words, this is telling us that we are going to return with Jesus Christ. In that day, we're going to come and He's going to set His feet on the Mount of Olives and the Mount will be split in two and then He's going to go to battle against all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. All of this merges together. That the Jews will look on the one they've pierced as he comes in clouds of glory. They will look on him and they will believe. They will recognize that he is their Messiah. They will put their faith in him. They will be born in a single day. The breath of God will breathe into them and infuse them and they will come to life. And Jesus Christ will establish His kingdom. 
And if you look at verse uh, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, in that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Jesus will be the only king in all the earth as he establishes his kingdom from Jerusalem. When we look at all the passages as they come together in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Matthew, Thessalonians, Revelation, and many more, I just hit some of the high spots. The day of the Lord will return and the return of our Savior. I was working on this outline and when I finished letter B, I kind of felt I was finished with the outline and then I was motivated by God to add one more point this third point under number three the correlation of the passages of the second coming and it's as if my spirit cried out as I was typing the outline Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those of good will. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Do you have a great anticipation of that blessed hope in Jesus Christ? Are you looking forward to His return? Are you anxiously awaiting the day when you will come with Him? in clouds of glory and he will establish his kingdom and we will reign with him for a thousand years as co-regents upon this earth even so Lord Jesus come quickly Maranatha come back again that's our promise and that's our hope and I am so looking forward to the day when Jesus establishes His heavenly kingdom on earth. Thank you for listening to me this morning. I apologize for the hoarseness of my throat. Not much I can do about it, but sorry you had to put up with it anyway. And uh, I hope as you study and contemplate these last chapters of Isaiah, God will fix in your heart a longing for the return of Jesus Christ. And miraculous things are going to happen in Israel. Suddenly, they're going to be born again without labor, without travail, without pain. In one day, the whole nation will be born again. And they will see Him whom they've pierced. And they will believe. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the promise that Jesus is coming again. In his precious name we pray. Amen.